the universe has lots of weird, unexplainable things, doesn't it? You notice that? I, a friend texted me this little news clip, um, and I looked it up, and then I looked up this news story, and it's in Business Insider. And basically, the thrust of it is that the, the former national intelligence director is saying our government is getting ready in June to release a report. Um, they're declassifying it and releasing a report on UFOs. And if you're like, what? I'm in church on Easter, and the pastor's talking about UFOs? This is weird. We picked the wrong church, honey. It's all right. Just stick with me for a minute. But basically, the, the, the thrust of the article was that they're trying to figure this out, and there's military planes, that um, pilots that have seen all these weird things, and sensors that have picked up these things. And there's been movements in these objects that defy what we know about the law of physics. And so they're trying to come up with some ideas around what's happening. And it's funny, this guy's like, well, we don't really know. It's either adversarial tech, you know, some other nation state that's way ahead of us and our total, you know, breakdown of our national intelligence because we knew nothing about it, or it's our own technology, but our government can't ever seem to get their testing times right because people keep seeing these things, right? Or it's something else. And have you noticed that it's not just the universe that has strange unsettling things. Have you noticed sometimes in our own life we experience things that are outside of the realm of the, un the expected? Maybe something from the supernatural realm, an event, something that happens, and we're like, whoa, what's going on there? I was on the mission field in Fiji a number of years ago, and I was really, really depressed. And just, um, I knew I was supposed to stay. I knew God wanted me to stay, but I couldn't take it. So I booked a plane ticket home. And um, my missions team leader got, we got in a taxi cab. It was about a four-hour journey to the airport. And we're in this one town. And before we get out, even out of town, the clutch goes out in this taxi cab. It's really strange. I'm like, hmm. And we pull over into this taxi depot and switch over to a new taxi cab. These aren't like super old taxi cabs. We get in this new, pretty new, nice taxi cab, and we're driving. We're about half an hour outside of town. And as we're driving on the smooth, flat, paved road, um, all of a sudden we feel this clunk, clunk. And we pull over and pop the hood. And where the strut attaches to the frame of the vehicle, it was sheared off. It looked like an angel had stuck a sword in there. And I'm like, whoa. And my leader goes, I'll get you another cab if you want, but I'm starting to worry somebody's going to get hurt. And I stayed in Fiji. I knew God was keeping me. To this day, I don't know what God saved me or rescued me from. But I know in that moment, well, I, I, don't, I don't have any other explanation for that except God kept me there. There have been some other things I've experienced when it comes to the supernatural, more of the dark supernatural or demonic realm in the past. I have a friend, Lynn Green. He's one of the key leaders in youth with a mission around the world. And uh, he was with uh, my former pastor, Dan, on an outreach years ago. And they're in Afghanistan on a cargo truck. And most of the team's in the back, and he's in the front. They're stopped in the middle of the night driving through the desert, and he's out trying to put his contacts in um, by the headlights. And as he's out there, he said the only way he could explain it was the noise starts coming from, from the distance and starts coming towards them. And it just sounds like a banshee scream. 
just terrifying. And it just keeps getting closer and closer and louder and louder. And all of a sudden, the team starts waking up in the back. Lynn freaks out. He jumps in the driver's seat, puts the car in gear. And all of a sudden, whatever this thing is, this noise, it slams in, enters the vehicle, and then it disappears. And they stop. They pull over and pray. And what they realized is this is a scare tactic of the enemy, of the, the demonic realm. And so they prayed into this. They went on with the outreach. They kept going, had an extremely fruitful outreach. I have another friend, Ray, who works, has worked extensively in Southeast Asia and spent time with them there and experienced some wild stuff um, in the spiritual realm. But he had an experience where they were ministering in this one village. And this village had a lot of Christians in it. And it had actually split off of this other village because in this other village there was a witch doctor. And just a weird... Um, presences that would appear and stuff and the curses and things they would put on this witch doctor. Finally, they got sick of this. They split this, the town off. Well, anyway, they were ministering in this town and they got word that the witch doctor's son was sick, deathly ill on his deathbed. And they, uh, all the incantations and things that he had done would do, did nothing for him. And so he actually called and invited the Christian missionaries uh, to come and pray. And so Ray and his team, is, they came into this other village, and as they approached the witch doctor's house and the fence that was around this little hut, bamboo hut in the middle of the, the jungle, um, as they approached the fence, a giant swarm of bees comes up and out and flies right around and sits right over this fence. And they're like, whoa, thousands of bees. And they realize, as they see this, they realize this is a scare tactic. And as they walk through that gate, whatever this was, just zoom, buzzes away, and is gone. And they went into that, that hut, and they prayed for the witch doctor's son who was on his deathbed, and God preserved his life in that moment for a number of years after that. Now, in the Western world, we are trained to write things off that don't line up with a natural explanation. Something that's supposed to be a miracle. It, it violates the laws of nature, we think, and so it, it just can't happen. Even some of you, I'm guessing, in church right now, you're in your head, you're, you're trying to think of all the natural reasons why what I just told you could have happened. I know, we got some. It's okay, I'm, I'm a skeptic too. And you're like thinking, I wonder what could have happened in that situation. What's another explanation for it? There's got to be a natural explanation. Or for so many people, and I'm guessing the majority of the people in this room, what you do when you hear stories like this or stories of, let's say, a resurrection, is you tuck it away in the back of your mind. You kind of go, hmm, that's interesting. But then you move on with your life. The UFO story I told you, probably not going to impact your life tomorrow. These stories I told you, I, I hope they impact you, but chances are for most people, um, you kind of tuck it away. You go, wow, that's kind of weird. You tuck it away in the back of your mind. You wake up, and it has no impact on the way you live your life tomorrow. It's just the way that most of us are wired. And many of Jesus' first followers, they actually had similar reactions to the idea of a resurrection. In fact, we have four accounts of the resurrection in the Gospels, if you're just kind of checking out God's church in the Bible. We have four accounts 
of the resurrection. And each account tells the story a little bit differently. In fact, as you read them, and I've read them all over the last couple of weeks, as you read them and kind of put together the details, you get this picture of this like exciting, fearful, chaotic, unsettling, stressful day where everybody's running around like crazy. Imagine something big happens in your life and you have to get news to all your friends in like, but you don't have group texts or, you know, messenger. And so you just have to actually run around door to door. You don't have a car either. You have to run around door to door all over town. It's going, did you hear what happened? Did you hear? That's how news spread, right? And that's the day that they find themselves in. In fact, I came up with a little phrase. I was kind of proud of it, can't lie. Um, I came up with a little phrase to describe this day. I think it was a beautiful, chaotic confluence of events. You're welcome. <laughs> You're not as impressed. Okay. It was, it was chaotic, but it was beautiful. And, it, and you just get this scene that all these different random things are happening and going on, and Jesus appears to these people and then these people, and it's just chaos, but it's a beautiful chaos. And as you read these four different accounts of the resurrection day. Actually, what you find is some of the details seem on the surface like they don't match up. In fact, some people, skeptics, have said, well, these are discrepancies, and the four accounts of the resurrection don't actually line up, and so how can this story be true if the four eyewitnesses don't even have the same, don't, can't even agree on the same story, right? But historians... Historians actually see this as a very strong evidence for the veracity of the resurrection. In fact, it's just the way that an investigative detective would expect if you were interviewing witnesses in a traumatic event. Uh, there's a detective named J. Warner Wallace. He was an atheist, ex-atheist, and ex-homicide detective. And he spent almost a whole year. He came to a church service with his wife. It intrigued him. He said, I got to go see what all these Christians believe. And so he spent almost a whole year scrutinizing the eyewitness accounts that we have in the four Gospels, just like he would a criminal case, putting it through the same rigor. And his conclusion at the end of it, he was convinced that Jesus' claims were true, that the resurrection occurred, and he gave his life to Jesus. In fact, he, he talks about the fact that Seeming discrepancies, now they're not really, they can all be resolved, but seeming discrepancies actually lend credibility to the overall account of the resurrection. In fact, here's how he puts it. He says, in all the cases I've ever worked from simple theft and assault cases to robberies and homicides, I've yet to have a case where the witness of the event agreed on every single detail. It's never happened. Let me just illustrate it for you this way. Hypothetically, let's just say hypothetically, we, had, we have some teenagers in the church. And after, at night, after a service, hypothetically, they wander somewhere to, a, let's, let's just say, an empty grocery, old grocery store next to a church building, hypothetically, and find a door unlocked. And the half a dozen or so hypothetical teenagers walk through the door and find a little mischief inside, and hypothetically, the cops get called. And thankfully, hypothetically, there, there's no charges pressed. But they spend a hypothetical afternoon cleaning up and probably won't ever do it again, hypothetically. But what's interesting about this hypothetical scenario is how each one of these accounts is a little bit different 
And you, you're hearing the story, and you're going, oh, wait, wait, how did this go? And you hear this story, then you hear this story. And they don't exactly match up until you put them all together and go, oh, but you know what they do? Every one of them lends credibility to the fact that said hypothetical event hypothetically happened. And we'll just leave that there and move on. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at two scenes from the first Resurrection Sunday. The first one is found in John chapter 20. And if you have your Bibles, you can start turning there if you want to follow along. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen as well. But just to set it up, in, in Luke's account of the resurrection, um, as you put together the details, remember, because every one of them seeing it, telling it a little different angle. So as you put together the details, what you see is this group of women that sets off probably before daybreak from a couple miles away in Bethany and heads to the tomb in Jerusalem. And as the sun rises, they arrive at the tomb, and what they see shocks them. They see the stone rolled away, and there's no body there. And one of these women named Mary takes off running immediately and heads back to go find Peter and John. And as she runs in, she says, he's gone. They've taken him. They've stolen the body. We don't know where. We don't know where he's been. And so that's where we pick up the story in verse 3 of chapter 20. It says this, so Peter... And the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they're staying. Okay, so we have this scene, and it's actually really funny, I think, if you look at the humor in the story, because actually in, uh, in Luke's story, he has just Peter running to the grave. He, he doesn't include the detail that John went, right? And so Luke says the women came, told them they thought they were crazy, um, but Peter runs to the grave to go investigate it. And John's like, John, we believe, scholars believe, wrote his gospel account a little bit later than Luke wrote his and would have had access to Luke's account. And so it's almost like he's setting the record straight. And John says, no, 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 no. I was there too that morning, and I actually outran that loser. A little friendly rivalry. I outran him. I was first. And so you get this, this scene of Peter taking off and John kind of lapping him and looking back and kind of like giving him a look. And anyway, John gets there, but John doesn't go in. I think he just peeks in. But Peter, being Peter, who's brash, he goes right into that tomb. And as he's standing there and staring, can you imagine Jesus, who's been crucified, died, buried, and he's standing there, and he just sees this picture, and he can't put it together. He, he, didn't, ex he didn't think anything had happened. But he's like, what? They stole the body. They stole the body. Look at, why would they leave the grave clothes? Why would they, why, why would they leave that and take the body? And he's just like, it doesn't make sense. And he walks away. 
and kind of goes, hmm. And you get this picture of a dejected Peter just walking back to where he's staying, shaking his head. Going, what's going on? John, it says, faith rises up in his heart when he saw what had happened. And for so many of us, I think this is where, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, this is where we leave it. We come to church, we hear about it every year. Here we talk about the resurrection all the time, but you come, you hear about it, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. You tuck it away in the back of your mind, and it doesn't really change anything in your life. But as we'll see, that was not an option for the original followers of Jesus. It changed everything for them. And at this point, Mary at some point runs up to the tomb. We don't know if, you know, they're already gone or, or they, she arrives and they leave and she stays. But she stays behind at the tomb. Verse 11, Mary. And she's, as Mary arrives, she's broken. This is Mary Magdalene, one of the first women that Jesus ministered to in his ministry. He had cast seven demons out of her. She was broken. Her life was destroyed, and Jesus gave her her life back. She loved Jesus with all her heart. And here she is, broken and grieving, thinking we can't even give Jesus a decent burial. His body is gone. His body is gone. We can't even give him a decent burial. We can't embalm him. What do we do? And she's broken. She's weeping. Verse 11, now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there or seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? You picture this? She's like tears, snot, mascara, running down. Maybe not. She's broken. She's broken. She doesn't even recognize Jesus. In fact, an interesting thing about the resurrection body of Jesus is as he comes back, it does crazy things that we don't expect. It goes through walls, through locked doors. Jesus appears, and he disappears. For, for many, they don't recognize him immediately. He, he veils the fact that it's himself, and then they recognize him. And it's this beautiful picture. Paul calls it the fruit, first fruits of the resurrection, of the resurrection body that we are promised in a new heavens and a new earth that is both at home in the physical It's physical, and yet it's perfectly at home in the spiritual realm as well. And Jesus Jesus looks at Mary and says, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And it says, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And when he did, her eyes were opened. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead 
to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary did. She went and she spread the news. Now, here's, here's something to realize about the first Resurrection Sunday. None, none of Jesus' original followers anticipated or expected the resurrection. None of them did. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is because they just didn't have any paradigm for this in their worldview. In the Greco-pagan culture around, um, in the world of Plato and Homer, the goal was always seen to graduate from this physical realm into an elevated spiritual realm. In fact, there's one legend where Zeus punishes Apollo for trying to bring a child back from death. And so for, for Greek people, for Greek thinking Romans, not only did the resurrection, bodily resurrection not happen, but no one even wanted it to. It was looked down on. Now, Jews, they did believe in a resurrection, except for the Sadducees. And you know the joke. That's why they're sad, you see. You can boo if you want. They believed in it, but they believed in this large-scale collective event at, at the end of the age where, where the righteous Jews would be resurrected and be able to participate in the coming era of the Messiah. But they didn't have a framework or a reference point for one person experiencing this resurrection. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was expecting it. They didn't have a framework from it. The second thing is everybody knows people don't just rise from the dead, right? Anybody dispute that? They, they don't just rise from the dead. You see, and lots of people think, man, those original followers of Jesus, just simpletons, believing crazy lies. No, none of them expected this. That's what you get as you read through. None of them thought this was going to happen. There was no one at the edge of the grave counting down to, for sunrise, 10, 9, 8. No, no, it wasn't happening. Nobody expected it. And this is the point, is, is Christians don't believe somehow a weird event took place and the grave just spit Jesus out or a strange anomaly happened. No, Christians, the central claim of Christianity is that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the point. The, revel, the, the resurrection is, by definition, miraculous. Now, if you write off the existence of God as a naturalist, um, you, you will naturally think the story is crazy and impossible. But here's the thing. In Scripture, God reveals himself to us as holy, which means set apart. So he is the creator, but, and he is set apart from his creation. But he also reveals himself to us as a God who is actively present, intimately involved in his creation, that actually holds together the fabric of his creation. And if that's true, then miracles actually are exactly what you would expect. My friend Israel, who was in that taxi cab that broke with me that day, I talked to him a couple weeks ago, and he said this thing that was so profound. He said, here's what you got to understand about our God. He calls it the divine duality. Our God is both the eternal and the Emmanuel, the infinite and the intimate, the sovereign and the specific, the providential and the personal. He is eternal beyond anything we can comprehend, and yet Emmanuel, God with us. Infinite. Intimate. He is sovereign. 
And yet he works specifically in our lives. He's providential. He works in this world, but then he's very personal in the way he approaches us. He's alive and active. He's alive. And so actually him moving on his creation is exactly what you would expect. Dr. Craig Keener, um, he wrote an academic work actually on miracles where he investigated miracle claims all over the world. He discovered that about 200 million people alive today <clears throat> have personally experienced or witnessed and what, what they would say was a uh, extraordinary, unaccounted event that they couldn't like explain by current scientific understanding. And that happened in direct response to prayer. That's one in every 35 people on the planet. I did this little trial test. The other two services, we'll try it again. I would like to see a show of hands. How many of you have, have an event in your life that you, you really don't have a good explanation for connected to prayer? Look around. I'd say we have a lot better ratio than one out of 35 in this room. And you know what? I think that's because we probably have a lot of people in this room that actually value the power of prayer. He works. And see, here's, here's the thing. If you're skeptical, you either have to write all these people who just raised their hand off and the other 200 million around the globe, you have to write them off as either delusional or deceived or you maybe have to admit that there is more going on the, behind the scenes than you realize. And when you do that, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't just tuck it away in the back of your mind and go, hmm, interesting, and go about your life as if nothing's changed. Actually take it out. Wrestle with it. Seek God. See what's going on here. Orient your life towards him. Say, God, if this could be real, how does that impact my life? So John, Peter, Mary, that's the first scene we're going to look at. The second scene you find in Luke chapter 24. It's later in the day. And Jesus at this point, this is this chaotic event. Everybody's running everywhere, right? It's later in the day, and this is another time that Jesus appears to some of his followers. It's called the road to Emmaus. It says this in, in verse 13. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about what had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Again, he veils who he is. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked. Jesus has such a great sense of humor. I, it's hard to, to read the Gospels without just loving Jesus because, um, and, and if you see him as like so serious and somber, nah, rabbis have the greatest sense of humor. I see so much humor in Jesus. 
What things, he asked them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since this all took place. They're broken. They're disappointed. As far as they're concerned, the last three years of their life were a complete waste. They followed this guy for nothing. And and the whole hope of the nation now that they saw dashed. And yet Jesus meets them here. And he's not going to leave them there. They go on, verse 22. They see this. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. See, earlier, just a few verses before this in Luke, it says when when the women came and told the disciples they'd seen angels saying that Jesus was risen, (coughs) they thought it was nonsense. They didn't believe him. They're like, yeah, I don't think so. And actually, this is really fascinating because if you read through the four accounts of the resurrection in the Gospels, um, an incredibly strong evidence for the resurrection. It's called the burden of embarrassment um, by technical people, scholars. But here's, what they, here's what's interesting. At this time in history, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law because their testimony was considered untrustworthy. I know. Sorry, ladies. You wouldn't have wanted to live in the first century. That was the reality in the culture. And yet every one of the gospel writers goes and puts them as the first credible witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. If you were trying to write and make up accounts and stories to support this thing that you were saying, if you were making this stuff up, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't. You would have the biggest, baddest, most credible guy, Luke the physician or something, right? Something everybody would trust. You would have him as the first witness, and now they put these women. Why? Because they're just reporting what happened. They're just the reporter. Here's the facts. Here's what we saw. Here's what happened. And here's how Jesus responds to them in verse 25. He said to them, (laughs) how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus walks with us, and he just like begins to blow their mind. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you're just like, whoa. And all of a sudden, things begin to click, maybe a class that you never knew. This was that moment for them, and it all began to make sense when the prophet Isaiah said he would be crushed for our iniquities, that our transgression would be laid on him. 700 or, or uh, about four or 500 years before this. No, 700 years before this. Prophet Isaiah, when he said that, all of a sudden, they understood it. They're like, Whoa. When, when David said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That his clothing would be divided, and then that's exactly what happens all of a sudden. Wow. Hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament 
about the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled every one of them. And their eyes were open, their, their minds were blown. They say later, weren't our hearts burning inside? So Jesus walks along with them. And when they get to this little village, they convince him, like, let's continue this conversation. They convince him to come in and stay for dinner. And he takes the bread and he breaks it as he's done so many times when he fed the 5,000. And he breaks it and he says a blessing in Hebrew. And as he does that, They recognize him. And before the words, it's Jesus, can come out of their mouths, poof, he's gone. Cool body. I want one of those. I'm looking forward to it. He's gone. And they go tearing off back down to Jerusalem and find the rest of the disciples. And they say, we saw he appear. They tell him the story. And the other disciples are like, it's true. It's true. Peter saw him too. And in the midst of all this beautiful, chaotic confluence of events, as they're talking back and forth excitedly, boom, Jesus appears in their midst. And he says, peace be with you, because they're a little freaked out. And then he says, they think maybe he's a ghost. I mean, you would too if somebody just appeared right in front of you, right? But it's Jesus. And to show he's very real, he says, "Uh, you got any dinner? Hungry. See, Peter, when Peter gives the eyewitness account, he's like, I know Jesus was alive. I had breakfast with him on the beach. Dead men and ghosts don't eat fish. I checked. He's alive. And here's how Jesus, here's the the commission Jesus gives them. It's in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Here's what he tells all these guys. He says, and he told them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Remember now, guys? Remember I told you I was going to die and rise again, like explicitly a couple times? Oh, yeah, now we remember. They didn't get it at the time. But now they understood. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance, that's turning from sin and turning towards God, changing your mind about God and following him, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You're my guys. I have a mission for you. And now that you understand, now that you have encountered the risen Lord, everything is different. There's two things I want to make sure you don't miss in these passages. The first thing is this, that Jesus on the biggest day in history took time to meet each of them exactly where they're at. Mary, get this, before he goes and sees like, you know, the big shots like John and Peter and He says, I got to find Mary. I'm just going to wait for Mary. She needs to be first. Because I know the depth of her love. I know how much she's grieving. And so I want to, I'm going to 
reveal myself to her first. He meets her in her doubt, in her confusion, in her disappointment, in her pain. And these disciples on the road to Emmaus, you'd think Jesus just resurrected from the dead um, would have some stuff to do, right? Be kind of busy. Jesus says, I'm going to take like three, four miles, walk seven miles on this dusty road with two guys. One of them is Cleopas. The other one, we don't even know, but they're not two of the big guys. They're not part of the inner crew. This isn't like Peter, James, John, the 11. No. Just two random guys, two of his followers. I'm going to take time to meet them where they're at so that you, I'm not too busy to, be, to, to meet you. I want to help you understand that this is the way it had to be. That all this confusion, there's a purpose and a plan behind it. The thing you've gone through, there was meaning behind it. There was a purpose. There was a plan. And Jesus appears to them. Later on, Jesus will take Peter aside. And he'll meet him in his shame from denying Jesus. So Jesus has the time to personally meet the people that he cares for and that love him. I think that's so powerful. What a wonderful Savior. The second is this, that Jesus met them in their doubt, but he did not leave them in their doubt. Their encounter with Jesus required a worthy response. Jesus didn't give them the option just that nothing is going to be different from this point. He encountered them so that their life would change. For Mary, he used to say, don't cling to me. You're going to have to let go, Mary. I know you want me here in person, and you see me again, and now you're comforted, but I'm going to my Father, and you are going to have to learn to live by faith, not sight. I will send my comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with you and in you. But it's going to be different. And you're going to have to learn to walk by faith, not sight. That's the point where every one of us here who's a follower of Jesus is at today. We don't get it all. We walk by faith, not sight. And the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you need to move from belief to understanding, and then that's going to impact your life. The 11, you are my witnesses. I have a job for you. Now that I've revealed myself to you, you have a job. You have a mission. I told you in my father's house are many rooms, and I will take you, but that's not the time. I'm leaving you here on this earth, in this life, because you have a mission. You have a purpose. You have a plan. You are my witnesses. You are to carry the message of hope and resurrection to the world. See, their resurrection with the encounter Jesus changed everything for them. These men who ran away, ran away in fear at Jesus' arrest, now poured out into the known world and spread the message that Jesus is alive and he is the Lord of everything. See, the insurance that they had that Jesus had conquered death in the grave and promised them the same thing for those that fully placed their trust in him, because of that, it gave them the courage to live and to die for Jesus. These former cowards now had incredible courage. Here's what we know from history happened to the disciples. Andrew was crucified in Patras, Greece. Bartholomew 
or Nathaniel, was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. James, the just, was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death in Jerusalem. John died in exile on the island of Patmos after surviving being boiled in oil. James, the greater, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Luke was hanged in Greece. Mark was dragged to death by a horse in Egypt. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. You get the point? They're going out into the ends of the earth. They're doing what Jesus said. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Philip was crucified in Phrygia. And Thomas, remember doubting Thomas? The one that says, I won't believe unless I see the holes in his side and hand. I won't believe. Jesus revealed himself to, to him, and it changed everything. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear all the way over in India as he obeyed Jesus' commission to him to be his witness to the ends of the earth. That former atheist homicide detective, he says it this way. As he investigated this and he discovered, hey, none of these guys had anything to gain. There was no financial incentive, no power, no prestige. All they got was persecution, and they could just recant and go, okay, it's true, he didn't really rise from the dead. We made it up and go about their lives. But none of them did that. None of them did that. And here's what he concluded. He concluded, he said, you don't just fabricate a lie and then die for it. People don't do that. He says, when I realized this was the case, everything changed for me. I'm inclined to assign a higher level of authority to someone who has demonstrated his divinity by rising from the grave. I reread the words of Jesus from a new perspective. And once I realized the New Testament was telling the truth about him, I started to pay close attention to what it was saying about my predicament. It accurately described Jesus as God incarnate, with the power to forgive sins and shoulder the cost of human rebellion, it accurately described me as a fallen, defiant sinner in need of that kind of Savior. See, the, re the resurrection changed everything for Jesus. It changed everything for this detective. And it should change everything for you and for me. The great thinker of last century, C.S. Lewis, said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And here's the problem today. Is in a room this size, and I think there's some that would admit to themselves, you know what? If I'm real honest, I've completely treated Jesus as just sort of moderately important. Give him a nod here and there, throw up a prayer occasionally. But I don't really acknowledge him as Lord. I don't really live my life for him. I don't let the truth of the resurrection really impact the way I live. The truth is that the truth of the resurrection means we must pay very close attention to what Jesus said and reorient our lives to live his way. I lived in San Diego for a while, years ago, a couple of years, and did construction work and would commute on those interstates. Let me just tell you, you paid very close attention to the, the traffic report. 
Because when the traffic report came on and said, hey, there's been a really bad accident and I-15 is closed down and traffic's backed up all the way to San Bernardino, um, they weren't asking you how you felt about something. They were just reporting what happened. Just like the original eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. This is what happened. It doesn't really matter what you felt about it. You would either choose to reorient your life in accordance with the reality of what had happened, or you wouldn't. And if you didn't, that would impact the next few hours of your life. You'd be sitting in traffic. The eyewitness reports are the same way. It means that when Jesus said, hey, there's two kingdoms, a kingdom of God and a kingdom of darkness, and you are actively living your life into one of those, influenced by one of those, supporting one of those, that there is truly a supernatural realm. But the follower of Jesus does not have to fear that because Jesus has conquered the power of the enemy, just like my friends Lynn and Ray experienced. That when Jesus said, fear not, what can they do to you? Only kill the body? Come on, don't be afraid of that. We're like, that's really scary. Not if you understand the truth of the resurrection. You have an eternal hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, who's placed your faith and trust completely in him, you have an eternal hope. The author Mark Clark says this, more than any other religion or worldview, Christianity is founded on hope. We believe this life and death is not the end. As Tolkien wonderfully said, everything sad is going to come untrue. Christianity is not only true, it is the most hopeful option in the marketplace of ideas. And that's all because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. C.S. Lewis describes eternity, not as some like disembodied harps and clouds. No, no, that's boring. He says, no, understanding the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be like a book where every chapter just keeps getting better and better and better, and it never ends. And all the bookworms are like, yeah. And for the rest of you, that's like Netflix. It just, the season never ends. It's worth reorienting our entire way we live our lives to follow Jesus. The central claim of the gospel is that Jesus has risen and he is the king of everything. The resurrection is the evidence it's true. And giving your life to Christ means acknowledging and obeying him as your king, as your Lord. I want to invite the band up. And as they come up, I'm just going to close by um, telling you one more little scene from Jesus and Peter. A couple weeks, a week or two after these events we just read in the scriptures. Boys are out fishing. They've traveled north a few days, walked up to their hometown of Galilee. Um, Capernaum up by Galilee, and Peter's like, what are we doing now? I don't know. I mean, Jesus is alive. We know he's going to use us. We don't know how that's all going to work out. What should we do? Peter goes, let's go fishing, which is their former way of what? Life. Let's go back to doing what we know to do. Let's just go fishing, right? Sounds like a thing a guy would think of. So they go out, and they're fishing all night, and they don't catch anything. Also a familiar thing for them. I had a fishing trip like that a couple weeks ago. The fishing was great. The catching, not so much. 
And as dawn breaks, they see a figure on the beach, and the, the guy calls out, hey, catching anything? And they're like, no. He says, throw your nets on the other side. <laughs> and Peter goes, oh, it's Jesus. He doesn't wait. He dives into the water and swims to the shore. And after breakfast, Jesus pulls him aside. And they go on a little walk together. And Jesus meets him in his shame. And asks him three times, like the three times he denied him, do you love me, Peter? Peter says, yeah, you know I do. Jesus says, good, I'm giving you a mission. Feed my sheep. Do your mission. And the conversation with Peter ends this way. Jesus looks at him and says, you're going to go on to give your life for me. And don't worry about all the other disciples. What I want for you is you follow me. You follow me. Would you stand? You know, the call to Peter is the same call to you and to me. Follow me. Follow me. It's the only worthy response to the one who gave it all for us. The truth that he rose again, it demands a response. The question here today is, will you follow Jesus? Will you reorient your life to live his way? Will you give whatever it takes to fulfill the unique mission he's given you in this life? Or will you just come in and hear about the resurrection and go, that is awesome, and tuck it back in the back part of your brain and just like move on with your life? Is the truth going to impact you? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to put your life before him and go, Lord, my sexuality, the way I deal with my stuff, my anger problem, my addiction, I'm giving it to you. I want to follow you. I want to turn to you because you're worthy. My greed, I want to get. Will you follow him? And maybe some of you are like, you know, I'm just not ready. I still have so many doubts and questions. Okay. Will you keep wrestling with them? For too many years now, you, you've said, I've had doubts and questions. And you've used that as an excuse. And then as soon as the conversation's over, you put it out of your mind and you move on. Will you keep investigating? Because there's great answers to the questions you have. Would you wrestle with it, not just ignore it? Would you keep seeking him? Would you get involved in our church or another great church and, and, and pursue an answer to your questions instead of just ignoring him? You need to figure it out. You need to decide, am I going to follow Jesus? The truth of his resurrection demands that of all of us. Let's sing this song and then I'll come back up and pray for us.